Welcome to another edition of the Reporters Roundtable. Joining me today are journalist Liam Mayo of the River Reporter, Chris Raleigh with the Schwankunk Journal, and Derek Kirk from the Sullivan County Democrat. Before we get to our roundtable, just to let you know, the Reporters Roundtable is now a podcast. Search WJFF, the Reporters Roundtable, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's been quite a busy month, so let's get straight to it. Now, Liam, the Sullivan County Legislature has been talking about redistricting. Uh, could you provide some updates on the process and sort of give us a general overview of what uh, is happening? Yeah, so uh, the legislature has hired a company to do their redistricting. Uh, they're having to, it, it's a separate process from the statewide redistricting. And what it is, is they're having to change around the districts that elect each of the nine legislators to the Sullivan County Legislature. And they've elected to uh, bring in this company called Main Street Communications to do their redistricting. Uh, Main Street Communications has, according to legislators, uh, done redistricting each of the previous two cycles. I believe it happens once every 10 years or so. It's tied to the census and tied to shifts in population. It's also a Democratic media firm that boasts a pretty strong record of success with Democratic candidates across the country. So it's got this wing that's a Democratic media firm, and it's got this wing that's a very independent um, redistricting company. And they had a meeting with uh, Dave Heller, who's the sort of one-man band behind Main Street uh, Communications and its redistricting arm. Uh, they met with him on May 12 to discuss sort of what his contribution to the cycle would be. And he, he pretty much described his role in the process as he's a computer. I think were his words. Uh, he takes whatever data the legislators think is appropriate and then draws the lines accordingly. He said that the normal default data that he would draw from is just the census data about populations and um, the makeup of those populations. Uh, he also offered that uh, legislators provide him with voter info, so like where people have voted and who they voted for, and legislators opted not really to do that. And they also opted for a pretty hands-off redistricting process, uh, rather than having le individual legislators speak with Dave Heller throughout the process. Everything's going to go through County Manager Josh Potosik. Um, so it's very much just they're leaving Dave Heller to do his thing, and that thing will, by July, sorry, by June 18, result in a set of three maps, uh, I believe is the plan. Hmm. And those maps will go out to just the county at large. Uh, it'll go out to legislators, it'll go out to just the general public. And the idea behind that is so that everyone has enough time to see those maps and respond to those maps before they get voted into any sort of action. Uh, supposedly in previous rounds of redistricting, it was only sort of a small committee that saw the different possibilities of maps. And then they decided between themselves which map to work with. And uh, that was the only map uh, put out to the public. Uh, so legislative chair Rob Dougherty is being very um, forthright um, with his intent to have this be a very open and transparent process where everyone gets to see the different options on the table Everyone gets to respond to them, and hopefully by the time the process concludes, we'll have maps that everyone is happy with, um, although that seems like a pretty 
pretty good case of wishful thinking. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see once the results have come out and to see the reaction towards it because what I've seen lately coming out of the county legislature meetings is sometimes a tumultuous discord between the members of the public and the board. Yeah, the the, the tumultuous um, things of the Sullivan County legislature, um, I've already heard, heard slight rumors of that from the meetings uh, with people being suspicious about how transparent this process has been. Um, it's like if you are continually saying you're not trying to hide anything, what are you trying to hide? Uh, oh, I was just going to mention that so far the process seems to be going pretty smoothly, um, but I would also lead to the current statewide redistricting, which I believe we'll hear a little bit more about later, Derek, and just say that redistricting in general draws a lot of strong emotions. So right, right. I would not be surprised if those come out a little later on in this process. Yeah, definitely. It seems like redistricting it seems to be the the hot word now this election season. Now it seems like we have redistricting in the Congress, state senator, and and the legislature here in Sullivan County. Um, now moving on, you, this is a story that you we've been following on the local edition. You've been talking about on the local edition, and you mentioned also here previously on the reporters roundtable about the Delaware Aqueduct closing to do major repairs. This is a major vital water supply for New York City and the region. Uh, what can you tell us about the latest on that project? Yeah, um, so the Delaware Aqueduct, as you said, it supplies New York City with its water. It draws water away from the four reservoirs up at the, in the head of the Delaware River um, down to New York City. Uh, it draws about 500 to 600 million gallons a day from those reservoirs, which is about half of New York City's drinking water. And um, a lot of local residents' concerns uh, revolve around the upcoming closure of that aqueduct. Uh, starting in October, the aqueduct is going to close for around five to eight months for repairs. And those 500 to 600 million gallons of water a day aren't going to be leaving the, Del the reservoirs in the upper Delaware. So residents are concerned that there will be uh, flooding along the Delaware River um, as those uh, reservoirs fill up. Uh, there are sort of two areas that people are looking at as potential concerns. Department of Environmental Protection, which is sort of the linchpin of this whole Delaware Aqueduct effort, will be um, releasing a lot of water from the reservoirs prior to the shutdown to try and get levels down pretty low. So the river will be fairly high throughout the summer leading into the fall uh, because of these maximum releases. Uh, so people are somewhat concerned about flooding there, but they're a little more concerned about flooding on the other end of it, where depending on how long the shutdown goes, uh, we could be fairly late into 2023 and the reservoirs could be filling up with uh, just time and with rains and uh, that water might not have anywhere to go and it could potentially spill out over the top of the reservoirs and lead to some flooding along the river. Has there been any talk about the potential negative environmental impact from the work that's going to be done at the aqueduct during this, this time frame? I don't believe there have been any concerns about the uh, environmental impact of them. There are, there are some, I believe there are some concerns about uh, wetlands in Roseton, uh, one of the places where believe it's Roseton. Well, there are two places where the aqueduct is leaking in Wolborsing and in Roseton near Newburgh. And I believe in Wolbor in the Roseton area, 
some of the leaking water is contributing to wetlands in the area. So there's concern about if you chop leaks, you might lose some of those wetlands. Right. Um, other than that, I haven't really heard about environmental impacts from the process uh, because the aqueduct will be shut down. Uh, there won't be really water flowing through the area of the repairs to um, to carry any kind of contaminants into New York City's drinking water supply. And I have to imagine they're going to do their homework and um, make sure that everything is cleared out of those tunnels and everything is perfectly safe before opening the floodgates back up. Yeah, literally opening the floodgates. It's funny they use that word because we always hear that word everywhere. Uh, and you, this, in this particular instant, there actually are floodgates. Yeah, yeah opening the <laughs> sort of metaphorical and literal floodgates. Yeah. Um, but and then another thing that's just sort of important to mention is the DEP is putting a lot of faith in their forecasting models for doing this shutdown. Uh, they've said on a number of occasions that if the weather isn't looking conducive to the shutdown, they will push it back a year. So they would do that if the weather's looking too dry and there are worries about New York City not having enough water. But they also said that they would do that if the weather was looking too wet and there would be major concerns about flooding on the upper Delaware. So I, I think they're confident that there won't be any major issues uh, from going into the shutdown. And I think local residents are just trying to keep an eye on them and trying to make sure that uh, their confidence is warranted. Definitely something to keep an eye on. And I'm sure you keep us informed on the local edition or here on the Reporters Roundtable. Now, Derek, the really interesting, it seems like I said before, it seems like the hot topic, the hot word for this election season. Um, it seems like the news is changing every day. What can you tell us about what's going on at the state Senate level? Would be interesting. Uh, so yeah, I've been following um, more so in the recent article I've been writing about the Senate uh, district changing, um, and I've been looking at uh, uh, Senator Mike Martucci and uh, what all that is going on. Um, and it would appear to be that we are joining the fifty-first Senate district, and that would encompass a great deal of. Ulster, Delaware, Green, excuse me if I can't pronounce this right, Shahri, Shahri, Ostego, uh, Shenango, and Broome counties. So it's a massive Senate district uh, in the newest maps put out by. So in this new district, that means we're no longer in the 42nd district. So that means we are no longer have State Senator Martucci as our representative. Yes. Um, recently, Mike Martucci announced his campaign to run uh, in Orange County. So we, it is uh, definite that uh, Sullivan County will be losing Senator Mike Martucci as a representative because of moving into the 51st. It appears to be that we will be taking on a new senator, uh, Peter Oberacker, Oberacker, excuse me. Speaking with him, it appears he is close with Martucci. They know each other. They have been in communication. So Oberacker is familiar with, appears to be familiar with Sullivan County's issues and specifically the opioid epidemic that Sullivan County is dealing with. Times, time will tell if Senator Oberacker uh, will be able to pick up where Martucci left off and uh, continue that specific campaign against opioid crisis in Sullivan County. Do you know if he's running unopposed as of now? He is not run opposed. I believe right now he is running against Eric Ball, 
the Democrat uh, Democratic nominee on the other side. Do you know if any of the primaries have been affected by this uh, move of the of the districts? Uh, I'm not exactly sure. I don't want to say yes for certain on anything. It's definitely going to be interesting election season this year. Um, now, another area you cover is Tungsten. You cover the Tungsten uh, Town Board. Now, the last uh, Liam brought this up to our attention on the local edition about Tungsten moving their town hall from next to the theater on Bridge Street all the way to Main Street in Narrowsburg. Main Street, Narrowsburg. Is that move still happening? What can you tell us about the latest on that controversial move? Tus- the town of Tustin bought 93 Main Street um, last summer for about $1,400,000. And um, I was speaking with uh, Supervisor Johnson. He, when they initially bought the property, he told uh, the Democrat that he was excited to gain more office space. Uh, so according to him, that was one of the biggest reasons uh, that this question was even happening, um, because it would appear uh, that a vast majority of those who spoke during public comment and are very passionate uh, about this topic very, very much want Town Hall to remain at 210 Bridge Street beneath the theater. As per last town board meeting, it would appear that there are talks about renting out 93 Main Street. And I think that I believe that they will be doing research into how that process will go about. I don't believe that there are any commitments to renting out quite yet, but it would appear that that is the direction the town is taking. They appear to be remaining in 210 Bridge Street for now. And um, it also includes the parking lot behind the bank, which eliminated the possibility of simply selling the property as the town would like to retain the parking lot. And according to uh, the um, the town board, it would be very, very difficult or near impossible to sell the division of the parking lot and the building. So mm-hmm. naturally, that option is taken off the table. Right. And those who are familiar with Narrowsburg knows that sometimes parking in Narrowsburg on Main Street is sometimes not easy. So having that parking lot there is helpful. Now, Chris, let's look what's happening at Ellaville and Ulster County. Housing has been an issue across the country and also right here in our listening area. Chris, we can tell us about what's the housing situation in Ellaville. Yeah, no, this week I did a piece um, based on the uh, Benjamin Center's uh, report. Let me just get you the, the name of it because it sort of tells you everything. The Benjamin Center study was called Adding to the Load. How built-in biases in assessment make the property tax even more regressive in Ulster County. And there's quite a lot of information to go with this. Uh, The article can go 2,000 words. Um, I'm so glad I'm not an editor. But, uh, you know, there was a lot to get in there. The basics of it are that uh, the the bigger the property, the more... um, Horse, horse barns and swimming pools you have and everything, the more likely you are to be under-assessed. Whereas if you just have your three, four-bedroom uh, stick built on two to four acres, you're going to be assessed much more tightly and much more accurately. Um, it's, it just seems to be another of these inbuilt uh, advantages for uh, wealthy people uh, in the United States, you know, file this one alongside, you know, the uh, carried interest loophole. Um, 
how how to pay as little tax as possible. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, if you've got the money to set up companies and do that kind of you know uh, jiggery pokery with your money, then you can pay taxes of fifteen percent or less. You know, uh, uh, it, it just gets on and on and on. Anyway, this this report had a number of interesting things uh, about it, and uh, it seems maybe it will start a conversation. However, I was just read you something because. As doing this, there's some background, and uh, a lot of this comes back to decision by New York State Court of Appeals in 1975, the Hellerstein decision, which called for assessments to be made in the, in the state at full value. That means the full value of any property should be what the assessment would be. When that came down to the legislature, they, they leapt out of their seats because, as the Benjamin Center report noted, the widespread revaluation of properties across the state that would have been required to implement this decision almost certainly would have resulted in a significant shift in property tax liability from businesses and newer residents to long-established homeowners and voters. To avoid a political earthquake, the legislature blocked implementation of the decision for six years and then overriding the governor's veto, repealed uh, Senate thing, uh, Senate uh, Bill 306 of the Real Property Tax Law and substituted uh, 305.2, which explicitly permits assessment at a uniform percentage of value. And I suggest that everybody try to find out what, what in what township they are, what the uniform percentage of value is that your property taxes are based on. Uh, and it wants to be as close to 100% as possible. It's allowed usually to drift away from that. And before there was a revaluing with Washing a few years ago, um, it had to be down in the 0.065% range, which shows you how crazy it was, you know. So anyway, that reval in 2016 caused a lot of, lot of anger, a lot of ructions, because people suddenly discovered they were going to be taxed. And they hadn't been for generations, you know, so... Anyway, so I did that this week, uh, and it was it was a deep, deep uh, patrol through the weeds of property tax, and, and I suggest everybody, if they can, uh, take a look at it on News Atomic, or if you can pick up a copy of the Shangama Journal, you've got it in print. But beyond that, um, oh, oh, a little piece of thing we should note is that uh, the Cresco Labs IDA application uh, for a, a pilot, uh, that was approved last night. So um, that's that's happened. So as far as I can see, everything is cleared out of the way for Cresco Labs to come in and set up their um, $209 million, 380,000 square foot uh, growing and uh, processing facility for cannabis in uh, World War II. Right. This is a, a project you've been following a lot on here on the local edition, also on the Reporters Roundtable. So we look forward to hearing more stories on this processing plant and see if those projections that they gave on full-time positions and a boost in the local economy, if it actually does happen. Now, you've been we've been talking off-air about this particular sculpture that is moving from Thompsonville to Ellenville, or has moved already from Thompsonville to Ellenville, and now it's a sculpture that lives or lived at a defunct Borscht Belt resort, and now, like you said, it's going to make its way to Ellenville. What can you tell us about this this uh, sculpture that's uh, that's was in Thompson, now is going to Ellenville? 
Yes, and we would love to, if anybody knows anything about this sculpture, we would love to find out more about it. Um, it was set up originally, it's 15 feet tall. It has a look to it, sort of Star Trek, sort of late 50s, um, outer space kind of um, abstraction. Um, it's in cement with, with rebar flowing lines, hands or arms reaching up to the stars, who can say? Anyway, uh, it was uh, placed outside Schenck's Paramount Hotel in the mid-60s uh, and flourished there for quite a while, uh, along with everything else. The, the Schenck's was a really typical um, big um, Borscht Belt hotel with a huge swimming pool and sort of 20th century modern buildings, including the... the um, uh, iconic uh, round card room, which was behind this sculpture. Anyway, uh, Shanks closed and was sold to Bobov uh, Hasidim, who turned it into, uh, what's it called? Chav Chavas, or Ch yeah, I think it's Chavas uh, Summer Camp. Um, and uh, they took down the uh, 20th century modern wings, but they left the card room for a while and attached other kind of structures to it. And then recently they decided that the card room itself had to come down and uh, that put the statue at risk. And by that time, it was kind of surrounded by brush and small trees and it sort of disappeared from view. However, um, this young lady, um, uh, well, a youngish lady, uh, Marisa Scheinfeld, who is a professor of photography at SUNY Purchase, she had um, been notified. She had noticed this thing all her life because she was like, for instance, she was a, uh, she told me today she was a, um, a lifeguard at the Concord and she drove past this thing every day, but she never really took any notice of it. But now in 2011, she had taken notice because she took pictures of these things for her book, uh, The Borscht Belt, um, which I believe is on uh, Cornell, Cornell Press. In 2016. Anyway, uh, she was alerted and um, various people, Andrew Jacobs, other people got into, into action on this and they rented a flatbed truck uh, with a crane and uh, somehow or other they got this thing out of the ground. It is massive. Uh, its base is a good cubic yard or two cubic yards of cement and rocks. They got it out, put it on a flatbed, bought it at Elmville, all wrapped in blankets and stuff. And it's sitting there waiting to be uh, trimmed at the base and then re-erected uh, in front of um, uh, <clears throat> Barbara Hoff's Top Shelf Jewelry, which is the former uh, Allenville Railroad Station. Um, this is going to be an interesting little monument to the Borscht Belt. Now, eventually, they hope to have a little museum somewhere uh, dedicated to the Borscht Belt stuff. And this... Uh, Megalith can go to that, you know, and uh, carry on. It will need to be cleaned up, given the coat of paint, but it will be um, another intriguing uh, thing beside, beside the road when people come into Ellenville. It will be. <laughs> I can just see people going, what, what was that? Hey, Harry, turn around, go back. <laughs> I can just see that coming. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it would be, I wonder if it would be a worthwhile effort just to go back to the old news clippings to see if, if maybe there was a, a press release uh, on it when the, the thing was erected, if we know like when sort of the, the general timeline uh, on it. Now, you're saying as of now, there's no plaques on it, there's no signature on the base or anything like that that would sort of indicate who the artist is? 
Well, nothing at this point. And I, I can I can assure you that that Marisa has really searched hard on the internet. I searched a little bit. Yeah. Um, none of the tricks that I use has shown up anything more than Shanks Hotel existed. We do know that bef- that the Shanks bought it from the Miller family, mm. uh, and it's actually in Thompson, not in Fallsburg. It's it's often oh. misidentified uh, geographically as being in Fallsburg. It's not. It's actually in Thompson. Um, and as and it is it belongs to the Bobov these days, and and they don't have any interest in it, so it's gone. But uh, yeah, we would love to know who the sculptor was, um, mm. and uh, you know, you know what the story is behind it. You know, it, it would be it would be a great little tale. So we hope we, yeah. we we'll put it out there and see what comes in. We're definitely interested to find who the artist is and the story behind it. I've seen some pictures of it online since the story sort of has been circulating um, around. Uh, and it's very modern looking, very, very, you know, modern looking, spacey type of, of structure. Yeah, the style is definitely a sort of sub-sector of mid-century modern. And I've seen that that graphic style was uh, seen a lot on um, science fiction paperback covers in the late 50s. I mean, I have a number of them. <laughs> yeah, there, there, was a, there was a certain kind of set of things. And you can see it, it, it definitely shows up again, that style, in Star Trek. I mean, there's a lot about that stuff that Gene Roddenberry, um, you know, put into Star Trek that evinces this particular style of, of design, you know. Right, and, right. And we'll see. Anyway. It's definitely a story that I would love to keep a track on. And definitely let us know uh, in the future, either on the local edition or here on the Reporters' Roundtable, what you found out. This has been the Reporters Roundtable. I've been your host, Patricia Robayo. We've been joined today by journalists. We've been joined today by journalist Liam Mayo of the River Reporter, Chris Raleigh with the Shankong Journal, and Derek Kirk from the Sullivan County Democrat. Thank you so much for joining us for the Reporters Roundtable. Don't forget the Reporters Roundtable is a podcast. Search for WJFF, the Reporters Roundtable, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast to find out past shows. Thank you. Take care and see you next month.